Um, as you know, we finished our Roman series, and so for the summer here, we've got a, a couple of sort of one-off opportunities for some of us who are preaching, and today we're going to be in the Gospel of Mark, the 10th chapter of Mark. We'll be looking at a couple passages of Scripture there. Uh, but for those of you that are familiar with the, the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, uh, you know that he was an amazing teacher. Some people have called him the master teacher. He was able to employ all kinds of different methods to connect with his audiences. And it didn't matter if he was talking to the educated, the uneducated, the literate, the illiterate. He knew how to connect with people. And not by giving long lectures or using, you know, highfalutin words. No, he connected by telling stories that were true to the lives of the people he talked to, by giving them word pictures that they could relate to. And then Jesus employed the question. He employed the question many, many times as he was interacting with people. And he was masterful at how he could use the question to make a point, to challenge somebody, to reveal to somebody where where they were, what their need might be. Uh, Let me just give you a couple examples here before we get into uh, our passage in Mark 10 this morning. Jesus meets up with a guy who had been paralyzed for 38 years, okay? And he comes up to the guy and he says, do you want to get well? Now, isn't that amazing? I mean, who would ask somebody something like that? Well, Jesus knew this guy had some deeper issues that he needed to be facing. And so he asked this guy, do you really want to get well? Or or how about this one here? He's speaking to a group of people and he says, okay, show of hands here. uh, Can any of you by worrying add a single hour to your life? Isn't that a great thought-provoking question? I mean, couldn't he be asking us that question today? Really, who's adopted the worrying strategy, the anxiety strategy to try to stretch your life out longer? I mean, seriously, right? Jesus knew how to get people's attention. Now, here's one that only Jesus can ask, okay? Don't try this one at home. Why are you thinking these things? You know, he's with a group of people, and these guys are in opposition to him, and he knows exactly what they're thinking, so he asks them, why are you thinking these things? It doesn't work for us. It worked well for Jesus. But here's the final one. If you're in a social situation and you want the conversation to stop, to be over, try this one. Yeah, it's it's a conversation killer. Believe me, it'll be over. Okay, but in John 7, these guys were already trying to plot the death of Jesus Christ, and he knew it, and so he just got in their face. Why are you trying to kill me? Who, us? Yeah, you. The question, Jesus was masterful at using the question. And in, in Mark chapter 10, what we're going to see today is a unique situation. Jesus uses the exact same question word for word in two dramatically different situations, one with two of his closest followers that we're going to look at, and then with a perfect stranger. Totally different responses in both cases, but Jesus employs the exact same question, starting in verse 35 of Mark 10. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. I'll pause for a moment there because I was convicted when I read that verse. I used to pull this on my own father. When I was about eight years old, if I wanted him to do something or give me something or take me somewhere, I'd go to him and I'd say, Dad, promise you'll say yes to whatever I ask you. (laughs) You know, he never fell for it. He never fell for it. But here is James and John, two of Jesus' closest followers that are coming up to him and saying the same thing. Jesus, promise you'll do whatever we ask for you. 
Jesus doesn't fall for it, but he says, what do you want me to do for you? They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. So here's the question that Jesus poses to them. What do you want me to do for you? And in response, these two guys say to Jesus, Jesus, we know that you're talking about becoming a king. We know you're talking about a kingdom, and we like the sounds of that. We Jewish people, we Israelites, are tired of being under the the boot heel of the Romans. And we're hoping you're going to be this king, this conquering king, that's finally going to give us relief. And when you are, we're your guys. We're, the, we're your two top lieutenants, Jesus. You're the ones, we're the ones that you want at your right hand and your left hand in your kingdom. That's how they respond to the question. What do you want me to do for you? Now, Jesus knows exactly what's behind this question. He, he knows why they're asking him. He knows what they're thinking. He knows why they're mistaken. And what we read on in the next few verses is the other ten of the disciples, they get upset at James and John because of what they asked Jesus for. Now, they're not upset at James and John because they think that James and John are being too ambitious in what they're asking Jesus for. They're upset because James and John got to Jesus first. They're all thinking the same thing. They all want this kind of Jesus They all want to be freed from the Roman oppression and occupation. And they're they're upset because James and John kind of did an end run around. The rest of them went straight to Jesus with the question, Jesus, won't you make us your two top guys? So what happens is Jesus called them together, all 12, called them together, and he said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And what Jesus is doing here is he's addressing the very things that he knows that the 12 are thinking. This is what they want. They want to lord it over somebody for a change. They're tired of having somebody else lord it over them. And their high officials exercise authority over them. And the 12 are thinking, yeah, we'd like a bit of authority for a change. Jesus says, not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great, and Jesus knows they want to become great, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first, mm -hmm, that's what they wanted. They wanted to be first. Whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, which is what they wanted. They wanted to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So James and John, when they're posed with this question, what do you want me to do for you? Their response is, we want some greatness. We want some power. We want some authority. We want somebody else under our thumb for a change. So that's the first instance in Mark 10 where Jesus asks this question to somebody, and that's the response that we see. Mark goes on to say that Jesus and his followers were moving along the road. They were actually headed towards Jerusalem. And he says, Then they came to Jericho. As Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, which means son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. 
When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet. But he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, call him. So they called to the blind man, cheer up on your feet. He's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. And here comes the question again. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus. Your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. So when Bartimaeus hears the same question from the lips of Jesus, what do you want me to do for you? His answer is simply, I want to see. I want my eyesight. So here we have this question that Jesus poses twice to two different people, two radically different responses. First, James and John, as they respond, they they never even indicate any need that they have to Jesus. They don't have a request in the sense of some need that they have in their life. They actually see themselves as being prepared to offer something to Jesus. Jesus, we've got something that you need. We can be a big help to you in your kingdom. And if along the way we get a little power and greatness, success and control, that would be a nice side benefit as well. You see, James and John see things very clearly. They have it figured out. They know what needs to happen, and they know how they can help make it happen. And then on the other hand, we've got Bartimaeus who receives this same question from Jesus. But in his case, he expresses nothing but need. That's all he has is need. Because you see, Bartimaeus was a desperate man. He he was in a hopeless situation. He had absolutely nothing to offer to Jesus or anybody else. And so his request is for something to meet a very deep need in his life. So then I think we need to ask ourselves, okay, so what did these guys get from Jesus when they responded to his question? James and John, well, they didn't get what they asked for, did they? No, they didn't. They actually got called out by Jesus. I mean, they were sort of the reason behind a lecture that Jesus gave to all of them. And he he, kind of calls them out and he says, guys, you're thinking wrong. You're thinking backwards. It's not that kind of a kingdom. Jesus knew what was at the heart of that request, and so he addressed what was at the heart of it. James and John got it wrong. They were mixed up. They were confused. Now, it's easy for me to stand here and be critical of James and John as I read this in the Scripture, but if I'm going to be honest with myself, I have to say that I don't have to go any farther than my mirror to look at somebody who is every bit as confused and prone to being mixed up as James and John were. I had a reminder of that this past weekend. My wife just finished a 26-month course at our seminary in Chicago, and so I decided to go out and be there and be part of that celebration to honor her for the work that she had done. And our 
daughter and son-in-law who live in Singapore happened to be in the States and traveling around. They scheduled their visit to Chicago to coincide, so they were there as well for that event. And then our son and his wife actually live in Chicago, so the whole Swanson family was scheduled to be together there. Made our plans months ago, had all of our airline reservations and all the rest made. A month ago right now, our son and his wife who live in Chicago, who have been in the adoption process for a while, they got a call from the adoption agency a month ago. They said, we've got a young woman here, a teenager who's pregnant. She's actually eight months pregnant. And she has selected you guys as the adoptive parents of this child. And so they entered into this process, this relationship building over the last several weeks, and we knew what was going on. We heard the news. But then all of a sudden, we started looking at the calendar, and we realized the due date for this girl was when we were there in Chicago. And we thought, whoa, what a cool opportunity to be there. And on Sunday morning... When we were sitting in the chapel at North Park Seminary while Linda and her class were were finishing their work, our hopefully new grandson was being born in the hospital there a few miles away. And we were so excited. We get to be here in town when the baby was born. And everything was great. Mom was doing well. Baby was doing well. The nurses in the hospital were saying, hey, everything's good here. Released on Monday from the hospital, most likely, no problem. And, man, we were there till Tuesday, so we were going to get a whole day to overlap with our new grandson. Now, Linda and I couldn't go into the hospital uh, to, to meet them with, when there's an adoption, adoptive situation. It's all weird that way. Um, but our daughter-in-law had been there for the entire time. She was there for the delivery. She stayed with the, with the birth mom. And then our son got to come in and out and, and, and meet the little guy and spend hours with him and stuff. And it was all good. And we were very excited about Tuesday or Monday when he'd be released from the hospital. Well, Monday at noon, we got the news that a doctor came in and said, sorry, I have bad news. We have to keep the baby under observation for 24 hours. Some slight anomaly in one test that they do, and they just, you know, said, no, sorry, we've got to keep you for another 24 hours. Well, okay, that's fine. We want what's best for the baby. But then the bombshell came, and this was that the birth mother checked herself out of the hospital. She said, I'm done. I've had the baby. I'm, I, I, I want to go home. I'm tired of being here, and, and I'm leaving. And what that means in an adoptive situation, if the birth mother leaves, no more visitors to the baby. Baby goes into the hospital nursery, they take care of the baby, and until the final discharge, our daughter-in-law and our son got evicted from the hospital. They couldn't even be around their own kid anymore. Now, let me tell you, if Jesus would have asked me the question at that point in time, what do you want me to do for you? I had the answer, and and he didn't even need to ask because I'd already told him. I, I knew what needed to happen. I saw it very clearly. Number one, this teenage mom needed to quit being her teenage self and start thinking about others, start thinking about this kid. And, and number two, the hospital needed to lighten up. Everybody could tell this kid was perfectly healthy. There was no reason not to release him on Sunday. And number three, this baby needed to get out of this institutional nursery and get into a loving home where people would be caring for him and bonding with him for his own good and for his grandpa to be able to meet him. (laughs) That's what needed to happen. I was crystal clear on that. 
But in a few hours, I realized I was wrong on every point. On every point, I was wrong. This birth mom actually needed to give herself a little space from this whole, this whole situation because in 24 hours, she was going to be asked to sign a paper to legally and finally release this child into the adoptive family. That would end it for her. And she needed some time away from the hospital to process that through and get ready to make that life-changing decision. And you know, the hospital actually didn't know what they were talking about. There was an anomaly with this little guy, and they really did need to keep him there under observation. That was the best place for him to be. And as far as my concern about getting him out of the nursery into a loving, warm home situation, we'd been praying for this guy for months before we even knew he was conceived and and committing his care and keeping to God. And now all of a sudden it was my responsibility for 24 hours to protect it. No, I don't think so. God didn't check out at all. God kept his hand on that kid the whole time in the hospital. I was wrong, and like James and John, I didn't get what I wanted when I wanted it, even though I was sure it was what was best. But at just the right time, two hours before our flight took off on Tuesday, They brought him home from the hospital. And we got to spend not two days, but two hours with this little guy, little Winston Swanson, our second grandchild. And we will be forever grateful for the time that we did have with him, even though it was shorter than what we would have asked for. James and John didn't get what they asked for. What about Bartimaeus? What about him? Well, Bartimaeus actually received exactly what he asked for and more and more. You see, Mark tells us that Bartimaeus sat in the dirt by the roadside begging. That's how he survived, one meal to the next. There were no social systems, no safety nets in place in that day. He was on his own. He was a blind, homeless man, and he was in a desperate situation, and he knew it. He was hopeless. There was no opportunities or options for him other than what he was doing. But he believed that Jesus could actually do something about this. Jesus could address this situation. Jesus could make a difference in this situation. And so Bartimaeus came to Jesus with absolutely nothing to offer, nothing except his need. And I want to point out one thing in verse 50 there that we read a few moments ago about what happened when Bartimaeus heard the word that Jesus had stopped and was calling for him. Mark records for us, throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. Now, why would Mark bother to tell us that Bartimaeus threw his cloak aside before he went and approached Jesus with his request? Well, I believe the reason is this, that in that day, a person in Bartimaeus' situation, his cloak was the only thing he owned. And we read in history that a, a, a beggar would spread his, coat out, his cloak out on the dirt, and if anybody perchance threw a coin out to him, he'd hear the thud of the coin on the cloak, and he could reach out and find it and pull it in before somebody else would steal it. So his cloak became his, his, his way of receiving the gifts that some people might give to him. 
As a homeless person, his cloak was his shelter at night. When it got cold, he'd find some corner to curl up in, and his coat would be wrapped around him and give him warmth. It would protect him from the sun and the heat of the day or rain if there was a rain shower. His cloak was everything he owned. His cloak was his entire net worth. Think about that for a while. That was it. That was his entire net worth. Mark tells us that Bartimaeus didn't even pause to grab his cloak. He didn't grab the coins. He didn't roll up his cloak. He didn't say, tell Jesus just a minute, I'll be there. No, he actually pushed it aside. He threw it aside. He wasn't going to let anything stand in his way of getting to this guy that he'd heard enough about to know that he might just be able to dramatically change his life. The only thing of value that Bartimaeus had, he left behind so he could get to Jesus. And what did he receive? Well, he received both his physical vision, his sight, but he also received a new purpose and direction for his life. In the last verse of that chapter, we read that Jesus says, Go, your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight, And followed Jesus along the road. You see, Bartimaeus was healed. He got his eyesight. And Jesus said to him, you can go now. I've done what you asked for. You can go. Go where? I don't know. Go home. No, he didn't have a home. Go to his people. I don't know if he had people. But in Bartimaeus' mind, there was only one place to go. And that was wherever this guy who had just changed his life was going That's where Bartimaeus was going. And Mark records for us that he followed Jesus along the road. So as we conclude here, I think we all need to consider the question ourselves. How does this question apply to us? And at one level, I would suggest that each one of us would do well to at least give some consideration to the question. If Jesus was to ask us this question, how would we respond and as we've seen in these two examples in Mark chapter 10, that, that there are, there's a whole range of different responses, but the response reveals what we believe about Jesus. See, we know what James and John were thinking about Jesus by their response. And we know about Bartimaeus when we look at his response. So it is a worthwhile exercise for us, I think, to consider the question. But at a, a much deeper level... I would say that Jesus probably isn't asking this question anymore. Because if we keep reading in the Gospel of Mark, immediately following this this interchange with Bartimaeus, Jesus and his followers go to Jerusalem. And Mark tells us this is the last time they ever go to Jerusalem. This is the beginning of Holy Week, or the Passion Week, as we call it. Jesus was in a, a week of his death. He wasn't asking this question anymore. The time for this question was past. Because you see, Jesus knew exactly what humanity needed, not wanted, but what humanity needed him to do for them. And Jesus was about to live into that answer on behalf of humanity. See, earlier on, 
when uh, Jesus had been lecturing his disciples, he said the Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom for many. They didn't understand what he meant by that, and they were about to learn what he meant by that. Because a few days later, Jesus would indeed give his life. The sinless one, Jesus, was the only one who was in a position to do anything about the sin issue that had existed since our first parents, Adam and Eve, rebelled against God. This separation of, between God, the creator, and his creation had existed, and nobody could do anything about it except Jesus, the sinless one. And Jesus willingly and painfully and sacrificially did what we needed him to do for us, never mind what we wanted him to do for us. He did what he needed, what we needed him to do for us. The actions that Jesus took that day when he went to the cross for us were so significant, and he never wanted us to forget it, so he instituted something with his followers shortly before he went to the cross that hopefully would live on in perpetuity, which it does to this day, as we see the bread in the cup here, as a constant reminder of the Son of God who did for us what we could never do for ourselves, who met our deepest need, even though we may not even have been able to articulate that need, bringing humanity, bringing creation back into relationship with our Creator, which was God's design from the beginning. And so as we end this sermon this morning, as we end this little journey through Mark chapter 10, we end here at this table. We end with this reminder that Jesus has given us as to what really is the most significant thing. Would you pray with me, please? God, as we consider the words and the actions of, of Jesus Christ, we we really do stand in awe of what an amazing teacher he was and the amazing truth that he had to communicate to us. And God, today our, our hearts are drawn to the truth of the cross and what Jesus did for us that we could never do for ourselves and that only he could do. And we give you thanks for that. And God, I just pray that you would open our eyes, open our hearts to uh, what we believe about you and about Jesus. We saw James and John. We saw Bartimaeus. And I pray that you would reveal our own hearts to ourselves. And thank you, God, for your open arms that welcome us. Thank you, God, for giving your son and sacrifice for us. And thank you that we can gather here today to remember. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.